I on? Maybe. I'm here. Oh, there we go. Now we're on. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Ian and Katie. Uh, man, that was so good for my heart and my soul to sing those words here this morning. But <laughs> welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Um, uh, we have a, a really, uh, I think, encouraging, challenging, but encouraging text that we're going to look at today as we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount and, and looking at that very thing of, of the heart of our worship. Um, and so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 today if you want to start turning there. But first, I wanted to celebrate something that happened yesterday. We got to be a part of the Sweetheart Classic, the race here in downtown, part of the Sweetheart Festival. Raise your hand if you were down here yesterday. I know a bunch of you were. It was awesome. And we have some pictures up here of, of what happened yesterday. Uh, this was our booth. We had a, a table out there where we got to meet lots of people from the community, give some free swag away, give out some, some hot chocolate. It was just a huge win uh, to be there and be a part of this event. I think there's some other pictures of our awesome volunteers, the Deckers, the Webs were there. Um, we had balloons. We had flying discs, not Frisbees, flying discs, because there's something different about flying discs than Frisbees. It was fantastic. We also had a number of people run in the race uh, or walk. We had some runners and walkers. And I'm proud to say that I think we had like six or seven people, redemption people, place in their category, finished top three in their category yesterday, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Let's give them a hand. Come on now. Um, yeah, a couple of you are in this room. And uh, one of those people was Ty Dannenbring. Ty, you're here somewhere, aren't you? I saw you coming. Okay, you're in the back. So Ty, first of all, like, how cool does he look, right? Like, he just looks cool. But what you don't see here fully, I mean, you can see, the, you can see what's happening behind him if you're paying attention here. He has just crossed the train tracks. But, the, you know, the bars are down, which tells you what? A train is coming. The next photo will show you how close it was. Uh, Ty, the, the train came across about a tenth of the mile before the finish of the race. And, and Ty was, was out there ahead of me. I could see the train, but Ty beat the train, barely. And I think afterwards, Ashley said, never do that again. <laughs> but, but Ty is not only faster than most everyone else running the race, but than a, than a train. Isn't that Superman? You're like Superman, man. So yeah, good job, Ty. <laughs> and praise the Lord that you're still alive, that you're still with us today. Don't do that next year. Uh, but yeah, speaking of the Danabrings, last weekend, the Danabrings, ourselves, and the Robertsons, uh, Brian and Sarah, who you heard about uh, just a few minutes ago starting a new regroup, we had a chance to go to a marriage conference down in Colorado Springs. And uh, it was great. It was the, the Family Life Weekend to Remember. Some of you maybe have been there. And it was great. We got a great weekend of just talking about marriage, investing in our marriages, um, and, and we stayed, the, the conference was at the Broadmoor, but none of us were able to stay at the Broadmoor, it was full, so we, uh, we stayed down the road at some other places, and, and the hotel where we stayed uh, was real nice, but it was kind of in the foothills, and, and outside of our room where we were staying, there was like no street lights or businesses or anything, which was really cool, but it got incredibly dark at night, and of course, in the hotel room, you've got these uh, you know, these thick curtains, right, that, that black out the room. And so uh, when we turned the lights off at the end of the night, it was pitch black in our room. And here's the thing about me. I can't see in the dark. 
I know that sounds obvious, right? But I mean, I really can't see in the dark. Like Becca, my wife, has this ability to see like the, the, the general outline of objects and still can like function like a human being in, in the dark. And I'm paralyzed in the dark. I can't move, right? And so we, we had turned the lights off. It was time for bed. But a problem uh, came up, and, and that was that I needed to go to the bathroom, right? TMI here, but, but that's the story. So I had to go to the bathroom. So I'm like, I can do this. I can do this. So I make my way in the dark towards the general direction of the bathroom. And along the way, I'm stumbling over luggage. I knocked over the trash can. I'm like feeling along the walls, right? And I kid you not, at one point, I ended up in the closet. Like, <laughs> it was one of those big walk-in closets, you know, with the sliding doors. And somehow I ended up in the closet, Instead of the bathroom. I'm like, there's hangers in here. This is not the bathroom, right? And so finally, I had to humble myself and say, Becca, can you turn a light on? Like, can you use your iPhone flashlight and just flash it my direction? And so she did, and I was able to get to my destination. But I couldn't see in the darkness. This is a picture of what we're going to see in today's text in Matthew chapter 6. As we've been studying over the last few weeks through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching us what right living looks like. He's told us that we must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But as Nate and Sean have shown us over the last few weeks, we've found that it's a righteousness that does not come from human effort, but from divine intervention, from Jesus himself. And so today, what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 6 is this, that that in this world, we're going to face darkness. We're going to face darkness, both around us and in us. And so to overcome the darkness, we must look to the light of Jesus. To overcome the darkness, we must look to the light of Jesus. So open up your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 19 through 24. If you don't have your Bibles with you, we'll have them, uh, the text up here on the screen as well. And what we're going to be doing today is, uh, what we've been doing through this series is employing the, the road approach. We uh, have really uh, found it helpful to use what we call the road journal for studying scripture. It's nothing new, but it's just a helpful tool to, uh, to read, observe, apply, and determine as you read through a text. And so we're going to be walking through that approach today. And if you, if you don't have one of these, we have some in the back on your way out today. You can grab one and use it as a tool as you study scripture at home. Uh, but we're going to walk through these, uh, these verses today using that road approach. So Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Let's read together. Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve God and money. All right, let's make some observations. We've, we've read our text. Let's make some observations here. And the first thing we're going to see is the heart's treasure. Verses 19 through 21, the heart's treasure. And, and what we see here is Jesus making a contrast between two things. This world, or the earth, and the next, heaven. And Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. So we need to ask the question, what does it mean to lay up treasure? What is Jesus getting at here? The words that he's using here imply storing or amassing, building up treasure and and, and putting it somewhere for safekeeping. In Jesus' day, most of the wealth that people owned was physical things. They owned clothing and furniture, and their currency even was, was actual physical coinage. They didn't have a 401k or places to stash their money. It was a physical thing that they needed to keep safe. So they would lay up for themselves treasure and places on earth. But Jesus says there's a couple of problems with this approach. He says, first of all, that the earth is not a great place to store our treasure. Why? Because he points at three things. In the earth, we have things like moths. I hate moths, right? They are the worst. Not only are they gross, but they flutter around all unpredictably. And I don't know if it's my height or what, but they come at my face all the time. Does this happen to you, right? They're always attacking my head. I'm terrified of moths, right? It's awful. But Jesus reminds us that there's things like moths in this world that attack us and attack our possessions and destroy what we have. Jesus also points out rust, which I think is a reminder that time works against us in this life. The things we own, our treasure, will will lose its value over time. It will decay. Jesus also points to thieves, that there are enemies who want to steal from us. The most obvious one is Satan himself, which Scripture says that Satan comes to do what? To steal and to kill and to destroy. There's so many things in this world that are, that are attacking and working against the things that we treasure here. I'm sure all of you parents can relate to this. A few times we have uh, come across our children laying up for themselves treasure under their pillow, right? We, 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 on a few occasions, we found candy under their pillows, right? They're hiding it. They're storing it up for later, probably trying to hide it from, from us or from their sisters. And the grossest, a couple of times, we found uh, half-licked suckers under their pillows, right? Which is just the worst place to put a, a half-licked sucker because you find the sucker and it's like covered with fuzz and hair. You have to like peel it off the pillowcase, right? It's really disgusting, and so there's a problem here. Our daughter has placed this sucker there, thinking that it, they're keeping it safe for the future, but in doing so, it has completely lost its value. So it is with our treasure that we store in this world. But Jesus says there's a second problem with storing up our treasure on earth. He says that, that your heart begins to follow wherever your treasure is. That's what Jesus says in verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if our treasure is stored in the attic, in the things we have in the attic, then our heart is going to start being in the attic with our treasure. 
I think in a positive sense, one of the things that helps me think of this is if you've ever given to a missionary or to a nonprofit or, or here at Redemption or to another church, I think as you start to give towards something, you start to care more about it, right? You start to pay more attention to it. Those newsletters that come in on that missionary or on your compassion child, you start to feel more of a connection to it because you're invested in it. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. So the question for us is clear. Where do we place our treasure? Where we place our treasure says everything about what our heart truly desires. So do you treasure money? If so, then your heart is probably desiring security or safety. Do you treasure possessions? And maybe your heart is, is longing for comfort or for status. Do you treasure success or popularity? Then your heart may be desiring approval from others. See, the problem isn't so much in these things in and of themselves, but the problem is when our hearts begin to follow after these things. We treasure them. Ultimately, this is a form of worship. We just sang about the heart of worship. When our hearts are, are tied to these things that we treasure, we begin to worship them. Here's what Paul David Tripp says in his book on marriage, and it's a quote that applies to all of us. He says, when the Bible says that we are worshipers, it means that every human being lives for something. All of us are digging for treasure. All of us are in pursuit of some kind of dream. Behind everything we do is some kind of hope. Every one of us is in constant pursuit of life. Being a worshiper means that you attach your identity, your meaning, your purpose, your inner sense of well-being to something. You either get these things vertically from the creator or you look to get them horizontally from the creation. I think that's so well said. Where do we get our, our hope, our identity, our meaning, our purpose, our sense of well-being is it in the things of this earth or is it in heaven? That's the call Jesus makes here. In verse 20, he says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Heaven is where we should store our treasure because in heaven there are no effects of this world. There are no moths in heaven. Praise the Lord. Right? That's great news. There's no time in heaven. There's no rust. The streets of gold are not going to rust or decay in heaven. There's no enemy in heaven. There's no thieves. There's no Satan in heaven. He will be defeated for once and for all. Heaven is the only secure place for us to store our treasure. So let's apply. Let's do some application here. What does this practically look like? What does it mean for us to store up our treasure in heaven. What are we talking about here? I think we actually have a great summation of these things in our core values as a church. We've been talking about our core values during this series, and I actually think each of them really outlines a great way to store up our treasure in heaven. They're, they're listed up here. Gospel identity, which is the idea of finding, again, your hope, identity, and purpose in the gospel and being saved by grace through Jesus Christ. 
in biblical truth and prayerful dependency, daily submission to God's word, being connected to him in prayer. Humble unity is a devotion to relationships with other believers, a commitment to the church, to the body of Christ. It's sacrificial love, right? Sacrificing our time, energy, and our our money, our resources for things of eternal purposes. And it's a kingdom focus, intentionally reaching out to and investing in others to expand the kingdom. What better way to invest in the things of heaven than to invite others to join us there? It's the greatest investment we can make. Here's the application for us this morning. What you treasure, you worship. What you treasure, you worship. Your heart follows after it. You find your identity and your security in those things. So where is your treasure this morning? Where you place your treasure is where you will get your identity and security. And Jesus says this world and the things of this world are not a good investment. All right, we're going to actually skip down to verse 24 in our text today, and then we're going to come back to those middle verses. So let's read again. We're going to look at the heart's devotion here. So go to verse 24 of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So let's make some observations here. What does it mean to serve a master? It's to be completely devoted to them, completely committed to them. You're not running off serving other masters. You don't have a side job, right? You are sold out for the master. And that master has the rights to direct you and your time and your work. It's been pointed out here that we should notice And what Jesus is saying here, the implication that we are made to have a master. We are made to have a master. Now, that might not feel very good, right? We are Americans. We love liberty and freedom and independence, right? But Jesus says, you're made to have a master. And you can only have one. Jesus says, we will either hate the one and love the other, or we will be devoted to the one and despise the other. This is strong language. But think about it. If a servant starts devoting himself to another master, what does that say about the way he feels about that master? Or think of another uh, covenant-type relationship, marriage, right? Imagine if you're married telling your spouse, hey, honey, I love you. I'm completely committed to you, but I'm going to have another spouse on the side, right? It doesn't work that way. They'd feel despised. They'd feel hated. Jesus says we have to make a choice. Who will we serve, God or money? The original word that you've maybe heard here for, for money is mammon, which was an Aramaic word for material wealth of any kind, anything that we can store up here on earth. So why does Jesus choose this word? Why does he use money, material things, as the alternative master to serving God? Well, I think we've seen already this morning that that our money and our use of money often reveals the state of our hearts, where our hearts put our treasure, what we worship. So if you want to know who you serve, 
If you want to know who your master is, follow the money. Look at your spending. Look at the things that you treasure. David Guzik has this quote that's really challenging, and I was convicted by it, so I'm going to make you be convicted by it as well this morning. Here's what he says. How can we tell who or what we are serving? One way is by remembering this principle. You will sacrifice for your God. If you will sacrifice for the sake of money but will not sacrifice for the sake of Jesus, don't deceive yourself. Money is your God. Some questions that came to mind for me personally were questions like this. Are you willing to sacrifice your time and energy for your job but find it difficult to carve out even 15, 20 minutes to be with Jesus every day? Another question, are are you willing to sacrifice your resources, your money for things of this world, but find it difficult sometimes to tithe or to give towards things of eternal value? Are you willing to, to sacrifice sleep? This gets away from even money. Are you willing to sacrifice sleep to get a few more emails sent or, or to watch those shows on Netflix? But then you find yourself incredibly annoyed when your child wakes up in the middle of the night needing you. That one really hit me. Whom we serve, who we're willing to sacrifice for, That's who our functional God is. Now, if you're feeling some some conviction this morning, rest assured that that I am too. These questions are are challenging for me. And the truth is we live in a materialistic society, right? Money is a part of life. We have jobs. We have responsibilities. So what do we do? Do we get rid of all of our money? Do we quit our jobs? Do we take a vow of poverty? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here at all. The Bible teaches us elsewhere to work hard, to be wise in our investments, to save for the future. Those are good things. But Paul addresses this issue in 1 Timothy, and I think it's, it's perfect to expand on what Jesus is saying here. He writes to Timothy, who's the pastor over the church in Ephesus, and he writes this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul writes, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Notice here that Paul isn't saying that it's bad, to have material possessions or even material wealth. But he says, don't be prideful and don't put your hope in it. Instead, use what God has given you for his purposes. Be generous. Lay up your treasures in heaven. Why? So that you may take hold of that which is truly life. So how do we apply this? I think we can say that what you are devoted to directs you. It becomes your master. It directs your time, your work, your efforts, and ultimately your heart. 
in the worship of your heart. So are you devoted to the right master? We can tell when we are willing to sacrifice for him, for his purposes. Now let me give some encouragement, right? This feels like the, the convicting sermon about money, right? And we're going to see in a second that I don't think Jesus is just talking about money here. I think he's talking about so much more. But let me encourage you for a second. This church, you guys, are a generous church. You're a generous church. And you always have been. God has provided through you and your generosity, your faithful giving, your, your, your joyful giving to the Lord so many times. Recently here, we had the Engelman family come up, Blake and Natalie. I think we have the slide here, and, and most of you got to hear this. They're in the process of adopting uh, from Columbia, and, and uh, they've got a, a ways to go still of raising funds. But just bringing them up here a few Sundays ago, we, we had over $2,800 given to their adoption fund just in a few days. Praise God for that. That's awesome. They still need to raise some more funds, so if you haven't had a chance to give, you still can. You can text that number right there to do it. But just one example of so many of how you guys have been so generous and faithful to give here at Redemption. So thank you for that and be encouraged by that. I think it's a question we always need to ask ourselves. Who is our master? Who are we willing to sacrifice for? All right, let's go back to the middle two verses to finish this off. Verses 22 and 23. And here we're going to see the heart's filter. It's interesting that, that sandwiched right in the middle of these convicting statements on money, we get these two verses. A while back, I was, I was preaching a, a message, and I, I, it was a text kind of like this, where you had the, kind of the heavy stuff on either side, the front and the end, and then in the middle was like the good news and the hope. And so I, I decided from up here that I was going to say, it's like, you know, the good news is in the middle, the, the bad news is on the outside. It's kind of like the bad news buns of the sandwich. And now that's become a quote. I think that somebody made a t-shirt that said the bad news buns, right? So you can take that home with you today. These are the, we've seen the bad news buns, but let's get to the good news meat of the sandwich, because there's something really important for us here in verses 22 and 23. Let's read it again. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? You're thinking, how, how is this good news? Let's, let's unpack it. Let's observe together. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. And the word for lamp here could mean any sort of tool of illumination. It could be a candle or any sort of a, a, a light. And the picture is this. The eye acts like a filter for our bodies. It receives and then filters the light that comes into the rest of our being. And so I did some crack research this week on Google about how the eye works. But then I checked with Jason Valderrama, who's worked in optometry, to make sure I wasn't totally crazy. So if you actually know things about how the body works, I'll probably say this wrong, but just go with it for the, for the sake of, of today. But here's, here's how the eye basically works, okay, in my understanding. The human eye, this feels so like I'm out. Like, it's like, 
I don't, everybody's going to be like, oh, this is, this is completely wrong. So just Google it later and, and get me corrected. But here's what I found. The eye receives outside light. So it receives light, and then it focuses on the correct part of that light. Then it turns that light into electrical signals, which your brain interprets as the images we see. Anybody? Yeah, roughly? Not bad. I get a C, C minus. I'll take it. Um, so that, that's how the eye works. So therefore, a healthy eye is one that is able to receive light, focus on the right things, and then interpret them rightly. All right? That's where I'm, that's where I'm going. If you have any eye problems, come see me afterwards. I'm basically an expert, right? But in contrast, a bad eye or an unhealthy eye is one that is unable to receive light. It's unable to focus on the right things. And therefore, it's unable to make correct interpretations. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. This is how the eye works. Whatever goes through your eyes will fill your entire being. They will determine what you see and what your interpretations are. This is what Jesus says. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And how great is that darkness? I, I love the, the CSV version of this. It says, how deep is that darkness? It's in you. It's inside of you. Now, why would Jesus say these things right in the middle of a message that is so clearly about money? Another interesting interpretation of the word for healthy here, a healthy eye, is single. A single eye. Jesus seems to be contrasting a healthy eye as, as one with single vision versus a bad eye having double vision. The world is full of so many things that compete for our eyes' attention. Jesus has given us an obvious one here, money and material things. But elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, he's given us some other ones, including lust. It's hard not to think specifically about lust when you read these verses. If you believe the statistics, and I, and I believe they're probably on the conservative side, pornography is one of the biggest issues that the church faces today. Statistics will tell you that 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults, 18 to 24, 76% actively search for porn. This is inside the church. 55% of married men and 25% of married women say they watch porn at least once a month. Today's Super Bowl Sunday. This is mind-blowing. The porn industry, its annual revenue is more than the NFL, the NBA, and the MLB combined. This is a huge pandemic that faces the church and our culture today. And I don't share this with you to make you feel guilty or suspicious of each other. But if this is a struggle for you or for someone you know, let me give you some hope today. This is something that I've struggled with as well. 
And it's something that makes you feel so shameful. It makes you want to hide. But hiding will only keep you in the darkness. God has given me and many others in this church incredible help and incredible victory in this area. And there's people here that want to help you. I think sometimes the message that you get is like, just stop, right? Just stop. If it was that easy to just stop, these numbers wouldn't be what they are. There's greater tools. There's greater help. There's greater hope available. God has it for you, but we need each other. We need brothers and sisters in Christ to help us in this area. So here's what I'm going to say. If, if this is something that you struggle with, shoot me an email, jeff at redemptionloveland.org, real easy. And you don't have to tell me details, and, and maybe it's not even this exact issue, but something similar. If, if, if you'd like some help, some accountability, some encouragement, some resources, please email me. Zero judgment, because I've been there too. But pornography and lust are defeatable enemies. Jesus has the power for it. As I read this text today in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it makes me think, I had a conversation with Ron Kokanowski the other day over coffee. And he was talking about Matthew, the disciple and the, the tax collector. And you think about Matthew hearing these words of the Sermon on the Mount and the conviction he must have felt as a tax collector. Right? His entire job, his entire life was about making money. In fact, even taking advantage of others to build up his own wealth. That's what he would have been known for. Like I picture the other disciples during this part like, you listening, Matthew? Like you taking notes, right? This is for you, man. It's for all of them. But I picture Matthew at this moment as Jesus is talking about the eye in the light and the darkness. I picture Jesus looking right at Matthew. That's what we were talking about the other day, Ron. As if to say, yes, you have been in the darkness. You have treasured the wrong things. You have been serving the wrong master. But what now? Like Jesus says, look to me. Stop living with double vision, looking at the dark things of this world. Look to the light. You see, Jesus himself, he called himself the light. John 8, 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here's the application. Where you look leads your life. Where you look leads your life, your entire being, your heart, your heart's worship. If you want to live in the light, you have to look to the light. As Nate has been reminding us each week, we are in the kingdom of the already, not yet. We live in the in-between. Jesus has conquered over sin and the grave, but we still live in a fallen world. We're still longing for the perfection of eternity. And in this in-between, it's so easy to get tripped up by worldly things. It's so easy to get our eyes set on things of darkness. But we can't see in the darkness. So what do we do? Do we struggle against the darkness? Do we try to stumble around and find our way? I wouldn't recommend it. You'll probably end up in a closet 
right? Just like me. It doesn't work. What we need is the light. We need Jesus. It sounds simple, but it's so true. The Bible says that even a little bit of light does away with the darkness. They can't coexist. That's why even spending a few minutes with Jesus each day, a few minutes in the word, in prayer, makes such a huge difference. I want to grow to be someone who's in the word and in prayer way more often, but even when I take 15, 20 minutes in the morning and spend time in his word, in prayer, looking to the light, it makes all the difference in my day. It doesn't become easy. It doesn't mean I don't still struggle, but it makes such a huge difference. We need the light of Jesus. So I think again of Matthew and all the disciples now standing at Calvary. And their eyes are focused on Jesus on the cross. Their eyes are filled with his sacrifice, his blood, his pain, his death, his light. See, Jesus is our light because he died for our darkness. He paid for it. He paid for our sins, and and he gives us a way to be forgiven of our sins by trusting in him so that we can now walk in the light. So I think we need to determine in prayer a few things today. That's the last, that's the D on the road journal approach is to determine in prayer what is God asking for each one of us today. And I'm not sure what, what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, but here's my encouragement. I don't think our prayer should be to try harder, but to see Jesus more clearly, to focus on him, to spend more time looking at his word and his promises. I think we can determine in prayer a few things. that What you treasure, you worship. So let's be determined in prayer to treasure Jesus. What you're devoted to directs you So be devoted to him alone. And where you look leads your life, so look to the light of Jesus. In a moment, we're going to sing a part of this song, and it's one of my favorite songs. It goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We don't need to struggle against the darkness. We need to look to the light. Worship team, you guys come on up. We're going to transition to communion. Now, earlier in chapter 5 of Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it's such a reminder that we cannot do this. We cannot be perfect. So what we need is not more effort. What we need is a perfect Savior. And that's who Jesus is. In communion, Jesus establishes this incredible reminder of what he has done on our behalf with his disciples. In the Last Supper, he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body broken for you so that you could be made to be whole. And then he takes the cup of wine and he says, this is my blood, this is my sacrifice for your sins, shed for you, 
so that your hearts could be made clean. So we take communion as believers in Jesus to remember what he has done for us. Communion is for the believer. If you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, we invite you to take part in this. If not, we want to invite you to believe in Jesus. Come talk to me afterwards or Pastor Nate. We'd love to share what it looks like to walk in the light of Jesus. But let's take communion right now to remind us to treasure the right things, to turn our eyes and our hearts back upon Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the hope that we have in you. God, it is dark in this world. And oftentimes it is dark in me. It's dark in us because we're looking at the wrong things. We're putting our hope and our security in the wrong things. But Jesus, your light is so much greater. And we know that your light does away with the darkness. So help us to look upon you. Help us to treasure you. Help us to be devoted to you. We can only do it by the help of your spirit. Thank you, Jesus, that as we take communion, we can remember that you have made a way for us to do this. Because you died for us on the cross, we have life and we have light. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you've done for us. Help us to rest in that now and as we go today. We love you, Jesus, and pray this in your name. Amen.